Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, former CIA analyst Yahya Fanusi on financial intelligence, fact, and fiction. This designated terrorist group that was posting on Twitter asking their followers to send them Bitcoin. I mean, a light bulb just went off in my head. I said, wait a second, I can analyze terrorist financing directly. I don't have to you know, go to the bank and get a subpoena and look at transactions. This is all public. This innovation of crypto, it now also exists for state actors to find an alternative way to transfer money outside of the influence of U.S. sanctions power. China right now is in the early stages of its own new central bank digital currency, and it's trying to encourage the rest of the world to sort of learn from its model. I don't think we're even in the ballgame there yet. Yaya Fenusi. Thanks for coming on Chatter and talking to me today. Great to be with you, David. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this. We've, we'll have we talk a bit about our, our career paths and their intersection. I'm, I want to say going back about 15 years, which you know makes me makes me feel old because it, it feels like it was yesterday. But I, I've wanted to have you, have you on because you have crossed the divide that many people seek to and, and don't quite make it of doing some really important work in national security, uh, increasingly in your realm, doing financial intelligence and cryptocurrency analysis, um, but also some some truly creative artwork. And I want to talk about both of those as we go on. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's let's talk about young Yaya. How did you how did you <laughs> ever get into government in the first place? And did did, was that like path dependency? Like looking back, you knew that would happen or were there alternate futures that could have turned out very differently? So many alternate futures. Uh, I don't think anyone would have guessed, you know, pre, uh, pre 2000 that I would be where I am today talking with you about my, my, my career formerly as a CIA analyst, um, because I had a circuitous route. I, I mean, I don't know how far back I should go, but in terms of my professional route, um, you know, I wasn't focused on government work uh, until I had the experience teaching. So I, I had a master's, you know, I had an undergraduate degree in economics, an, a master's in international affairs with a focus on uh, international finance. So on paper, you know, yeah, not not so surprising. But I think, you know, I was one of those people, you know, I, I practically went straight to grad school. school. I didn't have a whole lot of experience. Uh, so when I graduated, I actually was not interested in foreign policy. I actually was interested in education for a variety of, of reasons. So again, a very circuitous route. And I worked, my first job was in DC. I worked for DC government in the budget office working for the school system. So I was a budget analyst overseeing the finances of, of various school offices and schools and got an now, opportunity. How did, you get that, how did you get that job? Oh. Because I thought, maybe I have this memory wrong, but I thought you told me you grew up in California. Yeah. So, uh, you know, born and raised uh, a Calif Californian, um, I, I, I grew up and lived all of my life there until graduate school. So, or actually until, I, so I, I graduated from UC Berkeley, right? So again, Californian, born and raised. I thought I wanted to go to the East Coast for grad school, ended up going to Berkeley, had the time of my life. And it'll probably, that ties into what we'll talk about later, because one of my best memories from undergrad was I had a radio show. 
volunteer radio show, college radio, yeah, Berkeley. So fun. <laughs> so much fun. Time of my life. My own show in there in the in the basement of of KALX. And um, so I had this creative side, this creative streak that was with me all throughout school. Now I go to West Africa for the Fulbright uh, after after I graduate. Uh, and then uh, I had already accepted a master's at Columbia in New York. So I deferred to do the Fulbright, spent a year in, in Ghana, and then came back. And all of a sudden, I'm on the, I've been on the East Coast since, <laughs> since, the, since the late 90s. And um, so after, after Columbia, you know, I was looking for work. And I was, I was in D.C. on my spring break, you know, a month or two from graduating. And I happened, I actually was considering teaching. I, I, I think I felt sort of disenchanted with, you know, my career path. And I was like, oh, I don't, you know, I, I think I want to teach. And so I didn't teach right away. I, I, stum- I was networking and happened to talk to someone who was hiring for a budget analyst position uh, in the D.C. government, uh, the D.C. public school system. And so that was my first job. And from there, I got an opportunity to teach uh, at a charter school. I taught math at a public charter high school in D.C. And you know, this is not your this is not your typical story of the the young teacher who comes and then uh, against all odds and then he loves it and, and everything is great. Um, it was the toughest job I ever had uh, working as, I mean, as you can imagine, right? And, I mean, um, teaching at any level is is a challenge and different challenges at different levels that don't translate to, to you know, person good at one level. I can't imagine having taught a, a graduate class that I could teach kindergarten or, or grade school. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, uh, I, I've known people who have taught things like special needs classes in elementary school who, who might feel that they couldn't teach at the college level. But what was it about teaching that like didn't click for you? Well, as a teacher, you are always on. I think it's this, this, the stress level. Um, you know, uh, I, I find myself, uh, as I, I'm an introvert, I would say, you know, people don't, um, some people might not know that, but right. I need my, I need my time to, to regroup, to recharge. And as a teacher, it's not just the teaching, right? Obviously everyone talks about the lesson planning, but the whole day, you never have downtime. I mean, when the bell rings, you were out in the hall, you were trying to keep order, you were following up, you're, you know, addressing whether it's fights or, um, and that was just very intense. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it, it was three years, but what happened for me was I went from thinking, hey, I think education may be my thing. I could see myself as a principal or assistant principal. Let me just get some teaching experience. And with a month in, I, it was clear to me that, no, I don't think this is where I want to, where I want to go. And so, although I, great experiences, right? Like everything in a career, mixed bag. I mean, I, there for three years, love so much of it. I love, I love teaching in a sense, right? But the whole job was, was not for me. And it took me three years to find a job, to find a job that was suitable for me to leave teaching. Um, I was young and I was married at the time and actually had had my son. We had our son uh, during my, my first year teaching. So I couldn't just up and leave. And I was think I was considering the State Department. Um, I was thinking, you know what, let me, yeah, I think maybe let me get it back into foreign policy. And I was having a conversation with a diplomat in residence who's at, or who was at Howard University. My wife was there doing her PhD at the time. And he had just been visited by a, a, a CIA recruiter, someone from the Directorate of Intelligence who was, uh-huh. you know, vi- visiting campuses and, you know, dropping her card. And, and we were talking about 
jobs with a financial or economic focus in the government. And he said, oh, he said, think about treasury, think about commerce. And then he said, have you ever thought about the CIA? And I honestly, I had never really had. I mean, I mean, if if you want to sort of bring this bridge to, if I can bridge that there was the, you know, you know, me growing up in California, going to Berkeley, you know, the CIA was not on my radar. I mean, uh, in terms of a, a place where I would, where I would work, I mean, for a variety of reasons, we can get into that, but, but, um, but I had matured right since then. And, and, and when the question was posed, my first question was like, hmm, my, my first thought was, I hadn't really thought about that. I had never really, you know, I hadn't really thought about Intel. I don't know much about Intel. I did international affairs, but I didn't do security. And I got my degree, my master's before 9-11, right? And I often tell people the funny thing about going to this, you know, SIPA, the School of International Public Affairs, uh, graduating in 2000 was I don't remember the people that did security. Paula, who did who concentrate? Everyone was doing finance, or maybe you know uh, a regional concentration or economic development. Um, the security concentration was that was such a niche thing pre nine eleven. So I hadn't really done, I hadn't really studied Intel or anything like that. But it was talking to this recruiter who was from the DI. And she described to me what the life was like for what the work was like for for an intelligence analyst. And it sounded so, um, you know, it sounded uh, she, the way she described it. She said, you know, this is like grad school, but better. It's more real. It's very intriguing. It's intellectually stimulating. And you get paid. <laughs> and you get paid, right? Win win. Um, and so I was very open to it. So I decided to look into, look into the Intel world, look into the CIA, learn more about the CIA. Right. I, you know, I, I've said that the, the CIA, as you know, right. Uh, the public perception is a, uh, a mix of, uh, uh, misinformation myth, you know, in Hollywood and very little, you know, there are a few nuggets of fact that, uh, that may be there, but most people don't understand it. So, um, that was the path. And I went interviewed and, and eventually was hired as an economic analyst and then later Got, got into uh, the counterterrorism world. So what did your family and friends from back in California think about this? Surely you told some of them that you were going to be working in intelligence. How did they react? I, there was uh, nothing negative, uh, uh, you know, which is, I, I think, what, what one might think. I think the people who knew me well were, you know, felt that, oh, wow, this, this, this makes sense. You know, yeah, <laughs> you know, um, uh, so there, there wasn't, you know, obviously, because I had to have people, you know, I had to, I had all these, my references, family references and friends. Um, so, yeah, no one who knew me, uh, you know, uh, had any misgivings or, or thought that this wouldn't be a good fit, but but I think maybe from afar, right? Someone's oh, this guy from Berkeley, um, uh, you know, what is he doing? You know, especially maybe the high school persona of me, right? Which, um, you know, but 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 people who knew me well, I don't think were 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 surprised, and I think people knew that. Wow, if Yaya's doing this, this must be like something very interesting, something very positive to this. Sure. So you said you you, you started out. Talk about the analytic job that you had, obviously not the classified reports you saw, you know, too much, yeah. too many classified reports floating around these days, <laughs> but talk about the, the actual job you had and what, what it was like and how that carried through your career, even as you applied it to different types of analysis and different domains. So I was hired as an economic analyst, as I said, uh, over, uh, a specific set of countries in Africa. So I was hired for the Africa issue group. Uh, right. So my, uh, the, the key area of focus for me at that time, uh, was, uh, corruption 
and energy issues. So I dealt with countries that, or a country that uh, dealt with oil, that was an oil supplier. Uh, and obviously corruption is a, is a pretty prominent issue when it comes to, uh, to, to many African countries. So an economic analyst covering Africa, especially at that time, you're dealing probably more, I mean, it's really sort of political economy, right? It, it wasn't outside of... Um, you know, some issues where I covered where, you know, maybe we looked a little bit at capital markets and some of the surrounding uh, surrounding countries. You know, it was really sort of looking at politics, corruption and the like. And so that was You're not my, doing like hardcore econometric modeling and advanced statistics. It really is looking at the the intersection of the economics with the political structure. Exactly right. I mean, you may you may touch on some of that. You may work with other parts of the agency, uh, right? Especially on the oil side, right? I mean, there were folks who definitely were experts in energy and oil uh, uh, eco- uh, economic issues. But um, but so w- here here's what you do. I think when you when you join the agency, especially you know if you don't have experience in government, this was my first federal government government job. For, the first thing you do is just learn what it is to be an intelligence analyst, right? You, you have to learn the tradecraft. You know, you go through the training that, that, that all of us go through to learn how to do, how to do the writing, how to do the briefing. Uh, and so that's what I focused on, I'd say, for my first year, year and a half, right? Just understanding, well, what does it mean? Uh, but it, what, it was later when I became a counterterrorism analyst. I went over to the National Counterterrorism Center, volunteered to go, um, and there's a, a you brush over that like like <laughs> like it doesn't need explanation, but people don't know the backstory at the time of yeah. the 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 rise of well first TTIC, the terrorist threat integration center, which evolved into the National Counterterrorism Center, and here's a whole new entity being created to do something that the the counterterrorist center at CIA thought it was already doing to some extent. And other elements of the government, everybody's asked to basically contribute and help build this organization. Describe that dynamic and, and in particular, why you were happy to go there. Well, it was, again, a bit of a circuitous route because I'm there my first year just learning about the agency, learning about what, what, what what's this business of intelligence and, and where do I fit? And honestly, I was pretty happy with my role. I mean, I, I you know... I remember some of my first, uh, my first report that 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 I wrote, and I got feedback the next day from the briefer. Um, you know, it wasn't the PDB; it was one of our, you know, sort of more mid-level or not mid-level, but our wi- more widely distributed uh, products. And I got feedback the next morning saying, "Oh, you know, the person read it with interest. You know, this is a high-level person; they read it with interest, and and they thought it was a good paper." Uh, so, you know that that was that was great. Uh, so, so I loved the work, but something happened. Uh, um, during the course of my four-month cap training, uh, I remember I arrived at uh, the I arrived at at the building where we had our training, and I walk into the our classroom, and it happens to be July seventh, two thousand five, the date of the seven seven bombing. And so here I'm, so I'm in, I'm in training, so I'm not at my desk, right? So this is, I'm going to be away from my desk and I see what's happening on the news. And of course, you know, information comes in about, you know, what was what. And, and so this was the, this, was, many people had, I guess, a 9-11 experience where it's like 9-11 sort of, you know, maybe made them guide their careers in a certain way. Of course, I wasn't in government in 9-11, but for me, 2005 was very influential because, because of who did it. Because the 2005, uh, you know, 7-7 seven, seven 
was uh, perpetrated by four British Muslims. One was a convert, three were you know, sort of right, born and raised right. British. And so, you know, I, something I didn't mention just on a personal note, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Muslim convert. I converted to Islam in my college years. So, so these weren't like the 19 hijackers. These were Western Muslims, young. And so in a sense, I, I, I said to myself, this is a, an identity that I feel I have insight into, that I understand. Um, I have family in London on my father's side. I have family there. One relative who actually was on the, you know, on the uh, on the underground that morning, but you know, uh, you know, thankfully was was not harmed. And so I'm thinking about, you know, it, it sort of is hitting home, you know, the threat, the risk, and then the perpetrators. And then I started to think about, you know, wow, you know, maybe this is an area that I should get involved in, even though I never studied terrorism. And there were people at CTC within, within the CIA who I knew who had mentioned to me, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe you should get into counterterrorism. And it, it was at that moment that I started to think, you know what, maybe I should. And asking people around, talking to different people who would become mentors. Um, eventually, someone in, uh, someone that you know who, who was high up in NCTC's um, DI, basically, you know, I, I talked to him and, and, uh, and then he sort of you know, recruited me or had me come over to NCTC. So NCTC really is a melting pot of sorts at that point. You had people from at least, in almost in every group then, a half dozen or more different agencies and departments what was that like? Because you you came with some experience. You had been, you're not patting your own back here, but you, you were a good analyst back at CIA. And within a few years of starting, you had actually briefed President Bush in person. And suddenly here you are going to NCTC with some people who also had rich experience elsewhere, but many of whom did not because some agencies and departments simply sent bodies, including brand new people, because they had to fulfill a quota for this new organization. What was that like? Yeah. And this is where, I mean, I will have to, and I'll be very blunt, right? Because sometimes there are all these interagency dynamics that often don't, don't see the light of day uh, in, in, you know, publicly. A lot of people didn't, especially at this time, right? This is like 2006, 2007. A lot of people at the agency, you know, didn't have a high opinion of NCTC, if I can say, because of what you said, right? I mean, honestly, look, the, the, the CIA, DI, you know, especially at the time, right? The creme de la creme, right? In terms of analytic tradecraft, the training, the the the, the writing, right? So there was there's a certain level uh, of of performance there, and obviously NCTC, a new organization where they're just pulling from everywhere, and you always have this issue where every agency thinks the other agency is redundant and interagency, you know, that there's that. But I will say this about it, NCTC. I mean, NCTC. I think went through, uh, there was a learning curve. It did sort of transform from those early years where, yeah, maybe there was uneven quality perhaps. Um, and as t- time went on, they started to really professionalize the analytic core, if I could use that term there, right, with more training, giving them this, the same training that CIA analysts got. I think I saw that that started to change. But my personal experience was, was very good at NCTC. And one of the reasons... Uh, why is that, you know, there was an interagency culture. Now, obviously, every agency has its culture. The thing about NCTC that I enjoyed was that literally on my left was an FBI analyst. And then, but you know, in front of me was a DI, you know, the cube in front of me was someone from DIA, you know, 
NSA, like an RT, like all of us, State Department nearby, we're all working together. Um, and so I really enjoy, I, to me, I, I felt that the culture was a little bit more fresh. Uh, and so, and, and then because of the issue, so I was in a group that focused on Al-Qaeda. And for a while, uh, most of my time, was, I was looking at homeland plotting. I, I, I looked, uh, I dealt a lot with the issue of, of radicalization and, and how that was impacting uh, particularly, you know, Sunni extremist groups, groups that were uh, part of Al Qaeda or affiliated by Al Qaeda, inspired by Al Qaeda, and so here I am in this situation doing the you know, the, the great work of intelligence, but also sort of tapping into, I think, my cultural expertise, my understanding. You know, when jihadist groups were uh, when they were messaging, right? Obviously, they would make references that I think I understood from my own sort of faith understanding, understanding of scripture, understanding of, of Islamic history, being able to understand what the, the nuance was there, what they were trying to say, I think was helpful in understanding what, you know, what was before us, you know, in the CT fight. Um, yeah, and I will say uh, it's around this time that that I first met you in person. I'd heard of your work before then. Um, I was gone from government by then, but I was still uh, uh, teaching some training classes, coming back on contract. And I, I, I won't go into details, but I will recall uh, a training class that you were in. And it was pretty clear that you did not need to be in that class. It was almost, it wasn't quite an intro class, but it was close to it. And yet your attitude was exactly the attitude any professional would want in that environment because you didn't let it show. You you didn't roll your eyes, at least not that I could see. In in fact, you were one of those helpful people in the room, kind of helping to bring others along. And I I appreciated it then, and I still appreciate it now. Uh, NCTC was such a different animal in so many ways. Uh, how long, roughly, were you there, and and why did you leave? So. Uh, looking back, because sometimes the, the years blur together. Um, so I, my agency was only about seven years. And so about five of that was at NCTC. Why did I leave is, is a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, well, or no, why I left isn't a mixed bag, but my experience was, was a mixed bag. I tell people that my time at the agency was the highlight of my life. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned right. I, I had the opportunity to brief uh, President Bush uh, once when he when he came over to NCTC. Um, great experiences. My time in Afghanistan as as well. Um, you know, but there were some challenges, and w without g going into too much detail, I will say because this this will come up, uh, I'm sure, when we talk a little bit about some of the the creative work that I've been doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were there there was some uh, awkwardness around. The, let me just be blunt. Um, I had a tough clearance process. <laughs> I had a really tough, I mean, a lot of headaches, a lot of, uh, you know, I don't, I, I mean, it's the CIA. So I won't say, I mean, there's always going to be uh, for, for good reason, uh, scrutiny. Uh, but I will say that that process for me was very much a headache yeah. led to some, some things that, uh, that really just, you know, left a bad taste in my mouth. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, maybe I'll just leave it there, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> we'll pick up on it when, when it comes to, uh, 
when it comes to Yaya, the actual person putting a little bit of himself into a fictional character, which, uh, which is uh, your recent project. But, but it, it, it does speak to the point that a lot of people know that to get into the intelligence community, and in particular, the CIA, you have an extensive background check and research process into you and all of that. And that's, that's intrusive and, and people get through it or they don't, but it's not over. People don't often think about the reinvestigation as much. And, and I know in your case, the reinvestigation was even more difficult, if you will, and just uncomfortable. But it's important, I, I think, as you said earlier, that you still recognize that overall it was a great experience working there. Yes, great experience. And I think, you know, there was some awkwardness to uh to my role that that sort of came up during some of that reinvestigation process. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to say I was so unique. Um, maybe I was, maybe I wasn't, right? So here I am, to, to put it out on the table. Uh, you know, here I am, you know, you know uh, call it what you want to say, an observant, practicing Muslim um, which there are many in the, you know in the intel community. Oh, right? yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to make yep. it seem like oh wow there there is not a rarity. It's not right. a rarity at all. Um, you know uh, you know so in my situation uh, where I you know have that identity you know and very you know someone who who is part of the Muslim community right I'm part of the part of the Muslim American community um, you know I have. Uh, I've traveled overseas, right? Uh, and so there were just questions that were raised as I, you know, during my time that, um, again, made that reinvestigation process, I think, uh, harder than it should have been. Uh, and, you know, um, yeah, it, it, it made it very difficult at times. And so that was the, that was the side. It was so funny because I remember telling my what my wife, um, there was a time when over at NCTC, I remember saying out loud, you know, I love this stuff. I do this, this job for free. I mean, it was so compelling. So, so um, intriguing the, the, the work. Uh, but there was that side, that side that I think most of us hate, <laughs> you know, which is, you know, you, you, you're, you're on the hot seat and you're, you're, you, you're get put through a lot. And for me, that just was, was too much. And um, yeah. uh, I ended up not continuing. So what did you decide to do? You've, you've been involved in a lot of things and uh, n- not to talk about your, your current project, which is amazing. And I, I do want to spend a lot of time on, but yeah, you did, you've done a variety of things since then. So describe those. And then I, I do want to talk about some of the substance of the work as well, after you describe how, how you moved from the economic analysis through the counterterrorism to really focusing on some of the financial transactional work. Yeah. Well, so it's really interesting because um, you know, my work as an analyst, it's, it's funny how everything sort of opened the door for the next thing, because even though I had, you know, my, my exit from the agency and, and, you know, part of me felt like, okay, you know, yeah, maybe this, I'm not going to do this sort of work, uh, you know, long-term I'll do, do something different, but you know um, what I did right out was I worked with a consulting firm and our project was financial asset recovery. So my first job was working with a team of former government people. You know, some of us were former CIA, some of, some of us were former IRS, uh, criminal investigators, state department. And we, we 
we're mandated to look at kleptocratic asset recovery, basically recovering assets that were stolen due to corruption and recovering those assets for the rightful people, for the government or, you know, for the new government, for the new people in, in one of the Arab Spring nations, right? For, you know, where, where there was a, a dictator who had uh, been kicked out. And so what was interesting was, so here I am. So I was the lead analyst for this project. So our task was to find these assets and figure out how to get them back to the people. But we had no badge. <laughs> we had no badges. We had no subpoena power. We were private citizens with a private consulting firm. So we had to build really an open source based uh, methodology for researching, identifying identifying the assets, researching, and also sort of doing the link analysis really, right, of, uh, of you know, who's con- who would be connected to the previous regime? What are their associations? What is their property? What assets do they have? And really sort of mapping that out, mapping out a network. And this was all, again, open source. And then figuring out what are the tools? What's analytic software we could use? What are, what, what's off the shelf stuff that we can use for um, uh, you know, different types of databases, et cetera? And that sort of, I actually love that work. I mean, it was a short-lived project. It only lasted a couple of years, but um, that's when I got my my first taste of really this open source intelligence, uh, more so than than what I had done at the agency. Although, of course, there's open source intel at the agency as well. So that was my first job, and that was my first my foray, I guess, into uh, illicit finance research. Not just the corruption stuff I had done before, but you know, really money laundering, looking at money laundering and the like. And that's mm-hmm. what sort of set me on uh, sort of the path that I'm on today with some of my research. So there's certainly going back decades in in intelligence. There there's work on illicit finance, right? There's work on money movements, whether it's related to drug trafficking or terrorism or just governmental corruption. That's that's the kind of thing that you would have looked at occasionally as an economics analyst and specifically illicit finance experts would have looked at. But but you said something else in there that kind of takes it to a new level in the last 10, 15 years, which is the huge attention to cryptocurrencies. Um, I really want to break down this field because for for a lot of people in national security, uh, I was one of those people who did security studies all through and wasn't focused on development and international economics as your colleagues were at Columbia. Um, for me, I understand all of the words you use individually when you're talking about this stuff. I know what finance means. I know what illicit means. I think I even understand what cryptocurrency means. But once you start combining them all and you throw in some blockchain and some other terms, um, I kind of feel like like I'm Denzel in uh, Philadelphia when Andrew Beckett comes to him and and Denzel, the lawyer, says, you know, you're going to have to explain this to me like I'm a six-year-old. So, so help me out, you know, talk a little bit about a fundamental understanding for, for anybody. Uh, let's go back to your experience as a teacher. So I'm putting you on the spot, but teach us about financial transactions and how the cryptocurrency, uh, in, in particular plays into that and makes things much more challenging for analysts at every level. So I think I'll respond with my anecdote of how I got into crypto. 
But I'm actually going to say something which which may go against what you said, because uh-huh. you said that this may make it more difficult for analysts. But actually, I'll, sh- I'll explain how this is great for analysts. Uh, so looking at crypto. So, okay. so uh, fast forward a little bit from the, the consulting job. I joined a think tank. I joined uh, this is 2015, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which had stood up a center on sanctions and illicit finance. And again, remember how one thing leads to another, right? The consulting job sort of led to this, which was interesting. I felt like I was a bit of a fish out of water because, you know, sanctions, illicit finance and sanctions also within the government is a very, very niche area, right? Folks at Treasury, I mean, that's a very, you know, sanctions is a very niche subject, especially at, at this time, right? This was sort of during the, the, the heyday of the Iran sanctions. So it's growing as a policy issue, as a national security issue, but still very niche. And here I am in 2015, adapting to this new environment of being at a think tank, writing for the public, etc., doing research that's public. And I'm looking at what are the issues that are out there. And I heard about this thing called Bitcoin, which I knew very little about uh, you know, 2015. But, uh, but I hear people are saying that, oh, ISIS may be using Bitcoin and terrorists may use Bitcoin. And then the intel analyst in me is like, okay, well, let, let, let's, let's see what, what the data says. Let's see what evidence there is out there. Um, and in 2015, I, I never could confirm any of these assertions in the press that you know ISIS was going to be using Bitcoin uh, until something happened in 2016. So 2016, I'm, I, I see a press report uh, from somewhere in the Middle East, and it said that a, a designated terrorist group uh, was conducting a terrorist or a Bitcoin crowdfunding campaign. And at first I'm like, oh, okay, well, what is this? It's probably just another press, you know, just alarmism or, or whatever. And so you know, I had t- two interns, and so I was about to go to lunch. I said, "Hey, you know, c- can you all look at this while I go to lunch? You know, go check the webs, go check the uh, the press, and see if there's anything there. And you know, it's probably nothing, but we got to look into it." So I come back from lunch, and my interns, who were great, um, showed me they they did a little bit more research. They found that this designated terrorist group that was in the Middle East, a jihadist group, technically it was called the Mujahideen Shura Council, it was sort of a consortium of uh, jihadist groups. And they had a longtime social media presence. And on their Twitter page was an infographic. And the infographic had a QR code. And it said Bitcoin. So they're posting on Twitter, asking their followers to send them Bitcoin. So we scanned the QR code. Once we scanned it, it just opens up to a new website. And the website, it's you know, blockchain.info. And basically what that is, is it is a browser that lets you see the different wallet addresses that are associated with Bitcoin software. So if you have Bitcoin, basically it means you have a, an address and there's a digital asset in it. We won't get too much into the details, but just sort of hear me out here. So what happened was that when I saw that we clicked on the QR code, which took us to their address, and now what the address shows is is it shows you any transactions that go to that address. And it shows you how much Bitcoin is in there, or half a Bitcoin, or 0.0005 Bitcoin. You can see it. Which is a huge advance over a lot of traditional accounts of cash, right? I mean, that's amazing. I mean, it's, I mean, a light bulb just went out, went off in my head. I said, wait a second, wait, is it, 
I can do, I can analyze terrorist financing directly. I don't have to, you know, go to the bank and get a subpoena and look at transactions. This is all public. And the reason why it's public, I mean, David, you know, you said like finance and crypto, all these different words. Sometimes we're, we're sort of mixing words because it's not finance. You know, crypto is not really finance per se. Finance as we know it, finance is a banking thing, right? Banking infrastructure, uh, uh, you know, it, you know, it's money, and then and then you bring in cash, right? Which is uh, uh, you know, uh, put out by a government, right? Central bank money, fiat currency, Bitcoin, and crypto is a tech invention. It is a computer software, so it's really something out of the tech world. Even though we talk about it as digital finance or something financial. So that's why, you know, uh, you know, we, you know, that that's why it's 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 a bit different, but because Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, because they're software and they're open source software, right? The idea is that these are transactions built on an open source ledger that anyone can see, anyone can tap into. So the analyst in me all of a sudden realized that, okay, so this is something to write about. This is actually something where we could learn because now I can just simply watch I, every morning when I come to work, we're going to look at that address and we're going to see if there's any, if it goes up, if it goes down. And then, you know, we wrote an article about that. Um, so that was my, that was the beginning of me looking at cryptocurrencies, blockchain, you know, call it digital assets, digital finance, but looking at this sort of evolution of money digitally as a national security issue. Uh, and that's what I've been focused on much of the past several years. So help help me explain this to my to my son because my son heard about Bitcoin and basically asked me the fundamental question that I think a lot of people have, which is what what is it based on? And I think it's because probably somewhere in school he heard that you know the dollar you know had you know gold reserves behind it or the full faith and credit of the United States as it's stated on the currency. Um, but Bitcoin has behind it other people valuing the Bitcoin, but there, there is no government backing the currency as it is. So explain how that works in terms of why people have have faith in it as a as a currency. Yeah, I mean, maybe the, the flip answer is it's not based on anything, quote unquote. I mean, I can say that, but the story doesn't stop there. It's based on the demand. It's based on supply and demand or the market demand for something that is designated digitally within this ledger. So it basically means that since now I've got this software and now the software has uh, amounts of Bitcoin in different addresses. So if I can prove to someone, which you can because it's right there, if I can say, hey, I've got uh, a designated amount of Bitcoin how how much would people buy it uh, uh, from me for? There's now there's there's market potential market demand. Now maybe they're going to give you a hundred dollars. Maybe they're going to give you a, you know ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars. That has varied over time. Now that there's a market, or you know, th- for a while we've had a market for this digital asset and other digital assets. Now you can take this digital designation on the ledger and sell it for regular. U.S. money or or fiat cash. So now there's this market. Now this is why you have, you know, speculation. You have volatility because you can finally market this. You can you can finally 
you know, sell this uh, at an exchange. What's probably important to note is is what did Bitcoin solve? Like, what? Why is it? Why is it even a thing? Yeah, right. What, so, what gap is Bitcoin <laughs> filling? Exactly, and the gap goes to something known as the dumble. Excuse me, the double spending problem. And this I thought you were going to go Dumbledore on me, and this was going to be a very powder thing, which does oh, not give man. us confidence in Bitcoin. But <laughs> instead, what the double spending? The is double spending problem. Okay. So uh, the double spending problem is a basic problem of the internet and how the internet manages or uh, how data is transferred on the internet, right? So perfect example that we all know of is when you send a file on the internet, an email, a JPEG, et cetera, it's simply a copy, right? It's copied from your hard drive or your phone, your inbox, and it goes across cyberspace and someone else opens it, but you still have it in your inbox. That is how the internet works, but that doesn't work for value for money, right? I can't have a copy of a, of one or of a hundred dollars and then send it to you. So, so even though the internet has been this great revolution for communicating data and information, it has never worked sufficiently for transferring value, transferring money. So, when it came to transferring money, we've always we always have had to use an intermediary to. Check your account, credit it, and debit it. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, PayPal, right, would be in the middle, debiting and crediting. Uh, you don't actually send something peer to peer in the way that you do an email. Well, Bitcoin was an interesting invention because Bitcoin was the first software system where if you tap into the system, now you can you know, literally and sort of in, in air quotes, send this amount and you're not copying it. It doesn't work the way your email works, you know, and we don't need to get into the technicals of how it works, but just understand that the, the uh, you're transferring from your address to another address on this ledger, really directly on the ledger. And so now I can send my value and I'm not copying it. So there's no way to double spend it. I can't copy and just send right. it and just, you know, so, so Bitcoin solved that problem. Right. Now, am I right in a very simplistic way? Again, the six-year-old understanding mm. that, that Bitcoin is both more secure and more dangerous for an individual than other means because you have your vault, you have your account, and only you can get into it. It's virtually unbreakable. Maybe perhaps it is unbreakable, but if you lose that, you're in trouble. That's my understanding. How how far off am I? Yeah, I you're, you're not far off. I think it, when you're talking in, intrinsically about how Bitcoin works, so if we're just dealing with the software directly, and I'm in a participant, I have a wallet you know, maybe you just downloaded it and it's, and I am controlling that wallet. Um, no one can move your funds unless they have the private key that's associated with your wallet. So that private key is, is key, uh, you know, is, is essential to operating and transacting on the Bitcoin blockchain. Now the, so, so that's in, in, in the issue about unbreakable in the sense of, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain has never been spoofed. There's a lot of interesting computer science cryptography that sort of, uh, there's a, a mechanism of consensus that maintains that this is the ledger and that you can't counterfeit it. You can't counterfeit a Bitcoin. It, you know, there's no counterfeit Bitcoin. Now, someone could create a new blockchain, but it's clear that it's not the Bitcoin and it's not your Bitcoin. So 
there's so so these are you know it's really some uh, computer science uh, a, a feat of computer science that's involved here now on top of that there are applications where maybe if it's if it is too risky for you to have your own private key there are companies that actually will do that for you they'll really be the custodians of your of your bitcoin of your crypto and there that's a that's a billion dollar business uh today so the other aspect of of bitcoin that has received some attention is the mining and the drain on the world's energy that that creates talk through that a little bit why is it that in some regions of i think even in the us and some countries that a not insignificant percentage of energy consumption is bitcoin mining yes and 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 mining is is the term that has stuck even though it's 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 a bit of a misnomer because it's you know you, no one is mining but we use the term uh for the process of validating the transactions on this ledger so again this is computer science stuff and basically the, the way the if we talk about bitcoin the way that these transactions get confirmed is through a, a network of nodes of computer nodes and in a nutshell in order to participate in this, you've got to burn a lot of computer power. So if you're one of the nodes, if you're running a node on the Bitcoin blockchain, your computer has to work, which means a lot of electricity has to be cooled down. So you have actual farms of, of, uh, of hardware that, that are just running these calculations so that they can participate in this validation process of this ledger. And yeah, it's, it's energy intensive. That said, I mean, I sort of have two opinions on this. I mean, there's this one opinion of, okay, because people will put out a figure of, you know, it's, I don't know, the, the same amount of energy that's consumed in, in name your state or name your country, um, which again, right, but to me raises the question, well, you know, are we in the business of determining which use of energy is the most uh, socially beneficial or not? I mean, we're going to just do that for everything because, you know, it's going to be a long list. Um, but then there are efforts within the crypto economy and there are a lot of players, uh, there are a lot of developments to minimize energy use, uh, you know, and actually come up with different types of consensus mechanisms that aren't as energy intensive. So let's apply this to national security writ large. Mm. Uh, one of the things you've done in recent years is uh, on lawfare and elsewhere is take a look at the implications of the emerging cryptocurrency markets for various issues of national security. Just pick one or two. What do you think are some of the most interesting applications of this to national security and implications of it for national security that anyone involved in, in the discipline should be keeping their eye on? Well, I would say that there are three buckets for how to look at national security risks around crypto. And, you know, they may align with your time horizon, how you're looking at the risk. So the first is the short term uh, activity that's happening now of bad actors simply using crypto to, to, to fund their activities, to fund their operations or to steal crypto or cyber criminals who are, you know, launching ransomware attacks, right? Where they're locking up your soft, your hardware uh, for you to pay in crypto in order to release the information, you know, so blackmail via crypto. Um, there's the terrorist crowdfunding example, but even more so than that, um, because you know, maybe I should have I should have buried the lead in terms of that 
crypto crowdfunding, you know, because someone might be at home thinking, well, did they raise right. that much money? Yeah. <laughs> like, what, yeah. what happened? Um, they, at the time, they didn't raise that, but they raised about $600 worth of Bitcoin um, at the time in 2016 money. That, that money would be worth more now, but they only had a couple of transactions. Uh, but the thing is that that's a very rudimentary use of this technology for ill. Uh, what may be more of a concern would be really just the laundering, sort of adding a new money laundering uh, tool in the in the in the toolkit, right, for money launderers. Because you know when you when folks are laundering money, they're just simply just trying to disguise funds and put it through different hops and through different forms and different institutions if they can. And now you have crypto, which means I can take maybe illicit cash and go to a Bitcoin ATM, which does exist. Those things exist and put it into Bitcoin. Then I can send it to a drug supplier or, or whatnot. So now you've got a more complicated money laundering landscape. But the good side of this, or maybe the mitigating factor is that a lot of this acti- activity is visible, right? Because these crypto transactions can be seen. Now there's a whole there's an industry of blockchain analytics. There, are, yeah, there's forensics, yeah. right? People are tracking mm-hmm. and finding stuff. So that's the immediate, maybe the immediate concern. And a state like, let's say, North Korea uh, has been involved with a lot of hacking of cryptocurrency exchanges. There's a second bucket, which I would say is the fact that crypto is so innovative. The space is so innovative. This is the the computer science world where there are a lot of innovations that maybe don't fit into the regulatory framework because that first bucket, how do you counter it? Well, you counter it the same way you counter it, you you counter illicit finance happening in banks and at money service businesses, hawalas, et cetera. You sort of apply regulations. So when people use these uh, these services to get the money, uh, you you put them through a process where you have to know who they are. You have to check their ID, right? That's just basic financial services, anti-money laundering uh, regulation. So that gets covered. Uh, that covers the first bucket. But the second bucket, without getting into too much detail, is that there are innovations that maybe don't fit into that. Like crypto is more of a decentralized ecosystem. So there's always this risk that the innovation may outpace the regulators and law enforcement. So that that's happening. But the third issue, which is probably the thing I'm, I'm thinking a lot about now as a national security risk, is that because this innovation of crypto, this, this new way of dealing with finance that's more internet-based, because it now exists, it now also exists for state actors to play in to find an alternative way to transfer money outside of the banking system and thus outside of the influence of the United States and U.S. sanctions power. So we're really in the midst of, I would say, I think since 2018, we've been in the midst of quiet exploration of alternative, sometimes blockchain-based payment systems that Iran is experimenting with. Russia is very much uh, investing in and researching with the stated goal of circumventing U.S. sanctions, finding a way to do international trade where the U.S. can't, you know, uh, uh, tell the bank, you know, do not, you know, block that transaction, block that account. So we're we're in this world where it may not necessarily be Bitcoin. It's not going to be Bitcoin per se that it would be the issue. The issue is that the the there's now exploration of alternative ways uh, for doing global payments and the U.S. Um, how the U.S. either reacts to that how the U.S. addresses it you know that's sort of a big key question now. Yeah, 
plenty of stuff to keep people in your former analytic positions busy, but it's not just an intelligence community issue. You've raised the AML and other issues. How well prepared from your outside vantage point, how well prepared do you think the US government is through mm. entities like the Department of Treasury's Financial Crimes and Enforcement Network, FinCEN and others? Uh, are are we playing catch up to this system or do you, do you get the sense that that we're on it and we are where we need to be even as it evolves? I will say I'm going to channel my my former inner uh, school teacher <laughs> with the progress report, and I will say for the first bucket of you know catching the bad guys, right? If I can use that term, you know, catching the bad guys who are using crypto now, uh, I would give us a good grade. I would give us a you know a B plus, maybe A minus. Uh, because I mean, I mean, you know, you, you look at the, you know, go to the DOJ Department of Justice website. You're you're going to see all these busts of, of of crypto, of ransomware, of even terrorist financing. I mean, I, I would say that there, the the government knows what's going on and it knows where the gaps are. And you know, I, I deal a lot with folks at Treasury, folks at DOJ um, since 2016. The expertise has really grown on cryptocurrencies and on and on digital assets. You know, there are now more tools that are available. Um, so I would say we're, we're doing well there. But the bucket of sort of innovation, how there's this sort of gray area. This is maybe this is uh, I'd say there we're sort of at a, a C minus because the pace of innovation in the crypto space, you know, it just outpaces. Uh, what regulators have, what law enforcement have, and in, 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 I'd say in Intel too as well, just because of how quickly things uh, move in crypto. So I would say that we're a C there. Now, <laughs> failing great? I don't know if I want to say failing, but this this bigger question, because I won't say, I wouldn't give us a failing grade, but I would say the question of what is the future of money and global payments and will we have other you know, different digital infrastructure, will that grow and who's going to lead that? Uh, China right now is, you know, in the early stages of its own new central bank digital currency and it's developing infrastructure and it's trying to encourage the rest of the world to sort of learn from its model of digital finance. Um I don't think we're even in the ball game there yet. And I think that's where, you know, maybe I'll say incomplete. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the Biden administration has has last year in 2022 sort of put out a lot of, uh, I mean, created an executive order to get mm -hmm. the, the interagency to focus on this more. But I think there's a long way to go. It does feel incomplete to me. Now, again, I don't know who's working on this where, but for two reasons, I can perhaps in an amateur way assess that it's probably incomplete. One is that this this is a kind of technology for currency, if you will, that didn't exist in its form 10 or 15 years ago. So a lot of the senior analysts in the US government who work on these issues didn't grow up with this. Therefore, they're learning it. They're not coming in as native experts who are then applying all of the, the tradecraft of analysis and the link analysis and the technology to it, but they're learning as they go. And then secondly, it's just not as wide in the cultural imagination. I, I can't think of a single movie or TV show that I've seen that had a, a heavy cryptocurrency focus that was compelling. And maybe it's out there and I've, I've missed it, but I, I haven't seen something that's entered the popular discourse in a way that 
that kind of creates that critical mass for people to be ahead of it because they've been thinking about it, not just at work, but it's, but it's out there in the cultural imagination. Does that make sense? It, it does. I would say you're right. And I would say there's, there's an added factor too, which is that um, a lot of these issues, especially once you start to get to these more horizontal, uh, you know, these questions on the horizon, right, of, uh, well, you know, will the payment system change and will blockchain become more important? These are sort of far off questions. I mean, even China's um, investment in you know, it's new central bank digital currency. Like this is several years of planning and it's, it's really far off into the future that, that they're sort of planning. And so I think within our government, I think within the U S government, it's not seen as so much of an immediate issue. Um, you know, especially when you, if you think about it, so I mean, here's a perfect example. So the issue of China's digital currency, they have a central bank digital currency. Now, it's in, it is a popular issue. I mean, I've, I've testified on the Hill on, on it. So it's not like, you know, people on the Hill and other people aren't thinking about it. But what I will say is that there's this learning curve. It's like the first question that comes up, the national security question is, okay, is this going to displace the dollar, this new Chinese digital currency? Right. Because that's obviously that that's a huge national security issue. Right. If that were the case. And the short answer is no. In the next year or two. Right. Because this is not this does not change the fundamentals of the global economy or of, or of China's economy. And it's, uh, you know, um, the things that impact its, its regular currency. So I think when people hear that, they sort of take a sigh of relief and they think like, oh, OK, good. So I don't really need to worry about this. And my answer is no, you you still need to care about it because. The, the the plan of the People's Republic of China is is a very lo- there's a long vision that they have for the global economy. The play is not to displace the U.S. dollar by introducing this new digital currency. That's not the game that they're playing. The play is to introduce new technology that slowly they test out that other countries hopefully will start to use to then build an alternative payment system. That may take seven, ten years. It may take ten years for yeah, so yeah. you know. So it's it's a very different. Uh, you know, it, it's not an immediate concern, but it it should be a, a priority in my mind. So many of these things that we we've talked about, both from your own career and in terms of the substance here. I mean, I'm talking counterterrorism. I'm talking overall financial intelligence work, link analysis, the uh, cryptocurrencies. You've brought a lot of those into your newest creative project. And I want to talk about that a bit because it really is a remarkable audio experience so far. And we're talking about the Jabari Lincoln Files, your, I don't know what to call it. It's, it's, it's a podcast, but it, it really is an audio narrative experience, uh, a work of fiction. But it sure seems like there's, there's quite a bit of Yaya Fanusi in Jabari Lincoln. Um, talk about that. Why did you choose to do this fictional portrayal of some of these very issues we've been talking about really focused around this character? So the Jabari Lincoln Files is a fictional audio narrative. It is, I, I'm calling it, you know, it's a spy thriller, an audio spy thriller, um, but hopefully it's more immersive than an audio book would be uh, per se. And I wrote it. I'll tell you the roots of it actually were in uh, a few years ago. I actually was considering, you know, doing a, a bit of a, a, a memoir 
And, uh, uh, and, you know, it's something that I had sort of floated. I had a proposal out there and it's interesting. That's why, you know, sometimes rejection is the best, <laughs> it's the best medicine and it's often the best thing you can get because like many an aspiring author who thinks that, you know, they've got a great story and they want to write a memoir, you know, of course you think your story is the best. And, um, and so, you know, I, I didn't get too many uh, bites uh, initially uh, for for my own proposal, and that was the reason why I say that was good is because it actually made me think about well what was I what would actually be more interesting, um, I, you know I, I I took a step back and I said you know what I've always been a creative creative person, um, you know it might actually be better to make up a story to write a fictional story and have fun with it. Um, and, you know, and I remember, I think you and I, I think we met a couple years ago, you know, pre pandemic. And, uh, and, uh, when I was sort of thinking about, Oh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe writing something fictional would be, would be good. And so yeah. that put me yeah. on the path. I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember that coffee. <laughs> I, re- I remember it really well because, you know, I, I had, uh, I had read through your memoir, um, as you'd written it and it's fantastic. And I was, I don't know how to say this appropriately. Um, I was disgusted that the publication industry wasn't jumping on it because it's it's remarkable. And then you you said, you know what? I I, I think it may work better as a work of fiction. I'm like really? Because it's it's such a compelling story. I don't know if if it if it needs that, uh, except from that external spur of it, it's not happening in the at the pace you'd want it to the way it is. And then as you described it to me. I'm thinking, oh yeah, I I totally read that or listen to that, and it's taken a while, but but you're there. You've got the the first episode is out as we're recording this. You've got a couple of other episodes uh, that I've listened to that will be coming out, and just to give listeners here a sense of what the substance is, I'm going to play a clip now that that talks a little bit about some of this financial link analysis work that you in the, in the character of Jabari Lincoln describe. Let's play that. We had to uncover how criminals, corrupt politicians, and terrorists were devising new innovative technical ways to cover their financial tracks. You had to have an eye for uncovering patterns and links. For others, finding connections was either a chore of drudgery or a game of chance. The first connections most people find are often flimsy, usually nothing more than coincidental. But it was the job of a good intelligence analyst to sift those random coincidences and incidental contacts from the real connections and nefarious networks. So as you describe what financial analysts do, including uh, superstar analyst Jabari Lincoln, uh, did you have to think hard about how much you could include and were you going to reveal any secrets of how the U.S. government actually is ahead of the private sector on this? Or did you feel it was a pretty much open field? Well, you know, the, the, the benefit of me writing this is that, um, like I explained with my career, it's interesting that I started as an intelligence analyst, um, you know, did economic stuff, but more political. And then I did the counterterrorism work. So I was familiar with with the methodology that we're talking about here, but then it was when I left government that I, you know, sort of dug deeper into how you could do all of this through open source—not all of this, but do but 
could do so much of this through open source. And much of what I draw on, in fact, I, I actually kind of make a point in some of the story to say how this database is open source. This information is publicly available. Uh, you'll, you'll hear that in the story. And so, you know, uh, much of what I'm drawing on is public and is open source. And, and I'm not necessarily relying on you know, anything, anything classified. Of course, everything has gone through the, the, the publications review board. Uh, but I, I actually, you know, I, I, I've actually enjoyed the fact that, you know, I can sort of take things that I've seen the past 10 years, because I've been out of government the past 10 years, and write about that. And I'm not writing about anything that, you know, that I did previously within the government. None of, none of the, you know, all of these examples, the examples that I'm touching on are things that, you know, you could have learned about uh, in the public space. Right. I, I will encourage everyone to listen to the Jabari Lincoln files, but I'm going to preview just a little bit of it. Uh, first of all, you set it up initially and it's, and it's not in the voice of, of Jabari Lincoln to start. It's, it's in the voice of someone we don't know who's basically saying, we, you know, we you need to listen to what Jabari Lincoln says in these files in order to figure out what has happened and how we got to this catastrophe, which it's implied there has been some global financial crisis or other kind of devastation that has occurred. So it's almost like this is a found footage kind of thing. That's a, such an interesting device to use. And so many, so many producers, directors have tried to do that and have not done it well. And some have pulled it off but it does make it a challenge for you as a storyteller in terms of the, the the revelations and how to bring them out during the series. Why did you choose to go that direction? And, and how did you feel that that was fun as the producer of this? Well, some of it, like the creative process often is, is trying to respond to a practical question and practical issues, right? And one of the, the problems I had in the story, so as I started to write the story, um, uh, you know, I'm writing it in the uh, point of view of Jabari Lincoln. So Jabari Lincoln, you know, it's not a pseudonym. I mean, he, this is a fully fleshed character. He's not me, but right. the the story is written from his perspective. Now, as I wrote the story, now there are many scenes where Jabari Lincoln is not present. And so I actually had to think of, wait a second, if this is in his point of view, now how could he be narrating when he's not there? And just from that, uh, I said, you know what? We need another narrator. So that's how we came up with this idea of another person who's narrating the story and talking about the files outside of him. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the other part of it in terms of the uh, connection on uh, to your experience is that the series really starts off with Jabari, who is a superstar, you could say. Now, he's he's not the superstar analyst on... Russia, who predicted Russia invading Ukraine, or or the person who led the way to Bin Laden, um, he's a he's a very big fish in a small pond of illicit finance. But he he is the guy who really sets the standard for that in in the story. And yet the story begins, and he's in a bad place. Let's let's listen in. Jabari, you have not been able to clear up the issues the Office of Security has raised said the other, more senior agent, William Kreider. I realized he was the observing agent. This was no discussion amongst intelligence colleagues on the same side, but an interrogation, a typical FBI interrogation. One agent asking most of the questions, 
keeping my attention on him while the other, mostly silent, observed my reactions and responses. So Yaya, this this is this is an interrogation scene. You're kind of starting with Jabari not as his superstar self. We hear a little bit about that and we figure it out as the series goes on, but you're starting with him in crisis mode right at the beginning. Obviously a little harsher than what, you know, you described earlier for yourself, but but you're pulling from some real emotion here. Yeah, I mean I I think the best way to describe it, right, is it is a fictional story with realistic elements you know so when i'm i'm drawing on things that may have happened the elements that are there elements that i may have known about um but placing them in a more dramatic you know in a more dramatic way to sort of drive the plot and and uh you know the jumping off point i think what i wanted to do was i wanted to you know put the listener or the reader because it you know Maybe this will be a book as well at some point, um, you know, to to put to put the listener in the shoes of someone who is who has sort of been uh, who, who's who, whose feet have been knocked from under him. Uh, and so and it's funny because that intro, which starts the you know, starts the story. You know, at one point I thought, you know, in my editing, I said, oh, you know, do, you don't really know who he is. You know, should should I build this up better? And with you, know, I had some people you know, review it, and and every time they said, no, this is I'm sold <laughs> because it's so it's so intense. And I think what I also wanted to do is is, you know, there's this side of I mean, one thing about the clearance process or, or really the reinvestigation process that I that I think I can that I can share. I mean, maybe you, you relate, right? I mean, it, it it's funny when you go through that, whether it's your initial clearance or reinvestigation, you know, th- there is that emotion. I, I know plenty of people who, you know, when they did their initial clearance, I mean, you know, some people talk about they, they, were, they were brought to tears uh, going through that process. I mean, that that's not a rare occurrence, uh, but you don't get, you know, I haven't really seen that in a, in a movie or, or in a book. Maybe I've, mi- I've missed it. So I wanted to put something that was very real, very, you know, palpable, um, yes, of course, it's sensationalized, and there's, there's, you know, uh, you know, it, it's, it's somewhat over the top, maybe, but, but it's also real in some ways, and I, I wanted to convey that. Yeah, I mean, it is fiction, and it may be, and I wouldn't say over the top. It, it may be more dramatic than our experiences were, but it is drama. That is the point, right? It's, it's not unrealistic in that. Um, what's fascinating to me is the first episode that uh, is out there for everybody. It's, I wouldn't say cerebral necessarily, but there, there is some through that experience of the, the interrogation and, uh, no secret, uh, Jabari is put on administrative leave for some unresolved issues regarding some past activity. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of exposition to explain that in, within the telling of that narrative, but it really grounds you for the financial intelligence issues, number one, and for the person of Jabari Lincoln. Um, episode two, which I, I think will be out when we release this episode, I, I was blown away because suddenly we have an extended action scene that I would imagine when this does reach film and it's on screens, because I think it, it, it has that quality to it. This is going to be one of those scenes. I remember like the, 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 the shootout scene in heat where it just went on forever, but you didn't feel like it went on forever. It was just artfully done. And that that's the scene. I won't give away the details because it does give away where the story is going a bit. But 
you had to do something that I'm not sure you had done before, certainly at that length, which is write an extended physical action scene with a whole lot of movement and activity. Um, how did you prepare yourself for that? That doesn't come naturally. You know, uh, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know if how if I prepared. I think, uh, I you know, it's just the creative imagination process. Thinking of thinking of something. I mean, that the scene that that you're talking about. You know, it's a crucial part of the story. Um, and it might be, if I can remember correctly, it actually might have been one of those situations. I don't know if this is bad. But it might have been one of those situations where I thought of the, the scene before the actual plot. I was, I was thinking, oh, wow, this would be great to have something like this happen. But hopefully it fits. Um, uh, you know, it, may, it might have been that, uh, really. You found, a way, you found a way that the story could have this scene in it. Right? That's wonderful. Yeah. Maybe I should give away little tidbits here and there. You know, the, the idea of you know, taking stuff that's real. Like, for example, there's a part in that scene where you hear Jabari and he's talking about how something uh, the overseas deployment people told him before his, his war zone deployment, which was if you yeah. ever get caught, you know, if you, if you ever get kidnapped, you know, fight like the Dickens to, to get yeah. away because, you know, you're not, you're not going to. So, I mean, that's, that's something very real. And so I put that in his mind as he's going through uh, the experience, which I guess yeah. I gave away a little bit of it, but I think it'll still be good. But, but we don't know the context. And if you want to hear the context, you'll have to listen to the Jabari Lincoln files. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where is that available for people to listen to? So the Jabari Lincoln files is available wherever you can get your podcast. So wherever you're getting this podcast, it should be, you know, on Apple, Spotify, uh, Audible, etc. So wherever you are, and I will say that this is um, the subtitle is for this season is the Mansa Protocol. This uh, the intention is this is the first season. So. Um, so yeah. definitely would be, you know, I, I think people would, would, uh, will enjoy it. I, I, I guarantee they will enjoy it based on the first few episodes that I have heard. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back at the experience of creating this kind of the, the creative process and what you've put into it, kind of what, what are your reflections that will be useful for you going forward? Well, you know, I think it's all about knowing what really drives you, uh, emotionally, uh, creatively. And I'll share one thing, and I don't know if this will help other people in the audience. I don't know if, if other people will agree with this, but I found this for me. I remember a few years ago hearing someone say, um, I don't know who it was, but they said, when you're at the age of 14, that what you find that really interested you then is often linked to what you're good at or what you enjoy. And I remember hearing that, and, and obviously I, I thought about it, I was like, what was I doing when I was 14? And for me, that was uh -oh. junior high, right? Um, I think it was 14, yeah, yeah. And I was in junior high, and junior high, my pastime was I drew comics, or really comic strips. So I would draw these comic strips, and the comic strips were based on characters from my, my friends. So I would take my friend, my, my friend, Nick, my uh -huh. friend, Jay, and then I would make, you know, one was, I had this, well, I had a, name, a friend uh, named Aaron and his mm -hmm. character was Ramarin. He was a Rambo, he was a Rambo character and he, wow. you know, he had this action. Then I had comedy, comedy strips and these were black and white on, you know, notebook paper with like six blocks, et cetera. And I would come up with these series, each, each series would have episodes and I would hand it out to my friends every 
week or so. And I love that. I did it not for anything, but just wanting to do it for my friends. And so I thought about that. And I, and I think for me, the Jabari Lincoln Files is an extension of that. Creating something that is you know from my mind, reflecting the environment, but doing it in a way that I hope is enjoyable, intriguing for people. And I hope that people benefit from it. You bet. Well, we are the beneficiaries of that, even if we don't get to see the comics <laughs> we're, we're getting to see. Those are the lost files, the lost archives. Those are the true lost files. <laughs> That's season two, right? Jabari, Jabari Lincoln, uh, covert illustrator. <laughs> uh, we end each podcast here by reaching into our chatterbox ah. with some pre-printed questions. So let's see what it has to offer for you today. Who is someone in your field or a related one whose work more people should be following your chance to give a shout out to someone who's working and you, you define field however you want. It can be uh, crypto. It can be financial intelligence more widely or national security more widely, but who's someone whose work you are familiar with that you'd like to, uh, hmm. to bump up a little bit here and recommend to people. Wow. Well, I'm actually going to pivot from my national security work and I'm going to mention someone who I've never met, but I feel like I should give credit where credit is due. Hmm. I'm actually going to mention a mystery writer. Oh. A mystery writer named Jeffrey Deaver. And uh, in terms of his most mainstream work, people may know in the 90s there was a movie with Denzel actually called um, The Bone Collector. It was with Denzel and with uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Angelina Jolie. Uh, but that was based yep. off of his book. And I will say one thing, and I guess I'm giving something away by saying this. Je the Jeffrey D, that story, that book, the character's name of the mystery of the uh, detective, it's a detective yeah. series, is Lincoln Rhymes. Whoa. <laughs> I think I'm picking up on this. So, I'm slow, but I'm not that slow. Yeah. So, Je so Jeff the Lincoln Rhyme series was a series that I read while I was a teacher, actually. So in the early 2000s, I really enjoyed his writing because he he really, I think I, I, I sort of patterned myself off of this in many ways because he teaches you so much about the subject as he's taking you through the mystery, right? An area. And, he, and even the non-Lincoln Rhyme uh, novels, he, he sort of really explains something very technical and you, you feel like you can absorb it. And I think that has impacted some of my writing. So I'll say Jeffrey Deaver, I think he's still writing novels, mm -hmm. uh, someone to check out. Great choice. Yeah, yeah. We appreciate you coming on Chatter and sharing your stories with us. Thank you, David. Anytime. I appreciate it. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.